Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have an exciting founder turned investor. I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit about building, scaling, financing, taking companies public, exiting, everything that you can think of as part of the uh, full cycle of a business. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, David Waxman. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, all right, so David, so give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up because you were born in Santa Monica and then you moved to Berkeley? Yeah, I mean, I really mostly remember Berkeley. I moved there at the age of five. And, um, you know, Berkeley is a really interesting town. It's, it's a college town, but it's also got just a lot of interesting people from all over the world who live there, either who were attracted to the idea of Berkeley or came to the college and stayed or are involved with the university. And I was really fortunate. I grew up in the Berkeley Hills, which is a, par a neighborhood that doesn't really have any commerce in it. No shops, no walking, uh, or rather no walking to stores or anything like that. And as a child, I, I didn't like that so much. I felt like, you know, I had to sort of drive with my parents to go to town, as it were. But the one place I could walk to was a place called the Lawrence Hall of Science, which was uh, which is a science museum, still is uh, affiliated with UC Berkeley. And from a really young age, I started hanging out there. And I think that had a huge influence on me. So the whole, you know, computers and, 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 and technology, I mean, how, how did you develop that love for it? Well, as I said, I, I was spending time, and this is before everybody had personal computers by, by quite a bit. Um, I spent a lot of time in the science museum and actually joined something called the Friday Club, which was kids learning how to program. And we were learning how to program on an old deck computer um, and uh, also learned on some early personal computers. And that gave me a lot of exposure to technology far be before you know most of my peers were ever to see that kind of stuff. Um, and that Friday Club alumni network ended up, you know, they, they work at Google, they work in other, you know, pretty, uh, pretty deep in the tech industry. Um, and it was, it was the place where I wrote my first code. And, uh, you know, part of it was just wanting to belong to this group. But part of it was being super excited by the technology. And obviously it took no time, you know, for you to to use that, you know, love to eventually start your own company. Now, you know, before doing that, you went to France, you went there to um to to school where you did computer music as well, and then MIT. But coming out of MIT, the Media Lab, you know, you 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 obviously, you know, like started to experience with stuff and things led to the next, and then eventually you start your first company. Firefly Network, which uh, ended up being quite a, a good outcome. So, um, so how did you, you know, all of a sudden land, you know, on Firefly and, and how did the, the idea or what was that journey like of, hey, all of a sudden I, I'm starting a company, I'm starting my first company? Well, I didn't know that that's what I was going to do. I was a master's student and I was going to stay for the PhD. And, um, and honestly, growing up in Berkeley, you don't meet a lot of, or nowadays you do, but when I grew up in Berkeley, you didn't meet a lot of venture capitalists. It was not a place where, where I knew of such things. And I don't, didn't really, you know, in my early career in computer music, I didn't really understand venture capital at all either. Uh, but when I was in Cambridge, uh, I met a guy, I actually met a guy on an airplane who was a Harvard Business School student. And 
we started talking, we were actually about five hours into a, or four and a half hours into a five hour flight from San Francisco to, to Boston. And we didn't talk most of the flight, but at the very end, we started talking and realized we'd been at the same, actually at the same New Year's Eve party. And we had some common friends and, uh, and one thing led to another, he and I started hanging out. Um, he knew a lot about venture capital and he had been thinking about starting a company. And so it was, it was almost a little bit of a cliche story, a Harvard business school kid meets MIT grad. And um, actually through that relationship, we grouped together with some other kids from MIT. And, uh, and that's what led us to start Firefly. But I don't think without the catalyst of having met him, I, you know, I might have come around to doing startups, but it might have been a while. So what were you guys doing at Firefly? So we were the first company to do online music recommendations or online recommendations of anything. Um, there's this technology called collaborative filtering, which is very common now. You see it, you know, people who like X also like Y. People who like Taylor Swift and the Smashing Pumpkins also like Beethoven. It's very, you know, it's not necessarily obvious things, but you cluster with people who have similar tastes. And then using those clusters, you can say, who else, what else you might like because you're, you're near in tastes in taste space to these other people. Um, we started that with music. We ended up doing it with books and movies and websites. We were actually um, integrated with Yahoo on their My Yahoo page. We had another product that when we had these sort of preferences, uh, we, we thought that, that um, it was kind of personal information. We were kind of early into privacy and we thought, well, we're con collecting your book preferences. It sounds a little bit quaint now. We're, we're collecting your book and movie and website preferences. Maybe this is kind of personal information. So we, we had this idea for a common uh, data wallet, which we call the Passport, where you could go from site to site and sort of permission your data, your preferences data, so they could serve you, um, serve you recommended stuff. But then you could sort of have a receipt, you could rescind your permission. And so that got the interest of Microsoft. And we, um, and Microsoft bought the company in 1998. And the Firefly Passport turned into the Microsoft Passport, which wasn't exactly what we had planned. We had planned for more of an open data wallet where you could sort of a little bit like Facebook Connect was or like sign in with Google is now. But Microsoft had a different vision when, when we finally came there to, to make something that was just for their closed network. So it became the Microsoft Password, Passport and it was single sign-on for the whole Microsoft universe online and offline. So well, how was that process like of selling your company to Microsoft? I mean, that's really amazing. First company, first exit. What, what kind of visibility would you say that that gave you into the full cycle of, you know, the whole thing of, of being an entrepreneur? I mean, it was, an, it was an incredible journey. The whole thing lasted only three years, but it felt like an eternity. Being an entrepreneur, or certainly a tech entrepreneur, was not as well-known a thing at the time. So I didn't really have, it wasn't like you could look online and, you know, see videos of everybody else's experiences or, or follow people on Twitter or anything like that. Um, so I learned a lot, like basic. Basically, everything was on the job training, except for the technology part. Now, when when you guys ended up doing the the transaction, you know, literally, like 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 right after. I mean, the following year, you were already on your next venture on People PC. So, how did the idea of People PC come knocking? It was it was some of the same team members, and actually, all three companies I did were were with some subset of those same founders. Literally, my co-founder and I kind of locked ourselves in a room with pizza and <laughs> thought about what we wanted to do next because we knew we wanted to do another one. And and we always had, the, I mean, I think one of the great things about the internet period has been sort of the democratization of things. So the idea that 
that a, you know, a small retailer can compete with a big retailer, the idea that you, know, you don't have a middleman in certain cases, and generally that, that it, is a, you know, it enables creators these days to compete with, with you know, big uh, name brand stars or become big name brand stars without labels or uh, movie studios. And, um, and so that idea of democratization was very important to us. And back then, the, one of the issues that people were talking about was the digital divide, was the people who were online and the people who were not yet online. And it was very different. You know, our experiences of the world were very different. Some of us had the internet, and, and a lot of people still did not have a home computer and did not have the internet. So our mission was to make that easy. And at the time, it wasn't, it wasn't as easy to get on the internet. You had to go to a physical retailer and buy a computer. You had to figure out which online service you were going to use. You had to, you know, people didn't know how to necessarily uh, plug everything in. So we made it really easy. We put together a package that included the computer, internet access, and support. And we like did our own keyboard and made our own packaging and really worked on usability. And that was the idea for People PC. And obviously, you made it so easy that the company ended up going public for a billion. So uh, what was that process like of taking a company public? Well, let me back up a second, because it was a really interesting trajectory of that company, if you don't mind. Um, so we started as a consumer subscription business. So you you know pay a monthly fee and you get all of this. And we suddenly got this um, this inbound from the CFO of Ford Motor Company, literally in our inbound email box, saying, can you talk to us? And we talked to them, and they wanted to make all of their employees aware of, basically, they wanted their employees to get connected to the internet so that they could communicate with them, they could do HR stuff. And most of the employees at Ford at the time didn't have um, internet at home because, and they certainly didn't have it at work if they were driving a forklift or working on a factory floor. So we actually got a $300 million PO from them uh, when we were still only 20 people to enable their entire workforce. It was a subsidized program to get uh, computers in the home. And so we turned our model from a B2C uh, direct model to a B2B2C um, indirect model where we, we first did Ford Motor Company. We did then Delta Airlines um, so they could do scheduling, New York Times, Vivendi Universal. And, and all of that was, I think, what led us to have the, the growth that we needed to go public. So then going public, how was that like? It was a trip. Um, <laughs> it was, you know, in retrospect, we were a very young company to go public. We did have a lot of revenue, but, but you know, we were public. We, we um, started the company in 99 and we went public in 2000. So it was a pretty quick journey. And, um, and it was a little surreal, uh, to be honest with you. I, you know, we, we, uh, I remember very vividly the, the, um, the drafting process for the S1. And I was sitting, it was just me in a room with like 12 lawyers. We were still hiring our general counsel. And, you know, I was sitting there and we had these very deliberate kind of talks about, about what words we could use. And, um, and then there was the roadshow, which was something I'd never experienced before. And, um, you know, and then there was being public, which was both a good and a bad thing. I mean, it was, it was great. It was sort of everybody's dream back then to go public. But our stock price was fluctuating. And <laughs> suddenly people were, and I think that's still true today for companies that go public, you know, suddenly you're very distracted by this thing that wasn't a thing before, which is what is your price doing that day? Um, and, you know, after 2000, the market wasn't that kind to 
you know, not very profitable tech startup. So we, um, so we, you know, we got beat up in the market a little bit and that was, that was a huge distraction. Um, and, you know, in retrospect, I probably still do it, but it was, it was, um, I think, I think it's better now that people are waiting longer to go public and getting more, more prepared. So then after people PC, I mean, at what point there do you, you know, realize it's time to turn page and you move on to the next day, to the next gig? We sold the company. So we got bought by another public company called Earthlink, which back in the day was, um, was like one of the premier providers of internet connectivity. And they wanted to incorporate the PC brand. It was sort of a fighter brand for them. So um, in 2002, uh, they bought the company. Was there like a lesson on M&A that perhaps you got from the previous sale to Microsoft that uh, perhaps, you know, you wanted to implement for, the ne for this next uh, M&A, you know, process or transaction with people PC? Yeah, I think one of the things about getting bought by Microsoft, which was frustrating, was that they didn't really, you know, the, the sort of champion of the deal who did the deal had the same vision as us for the company. But Microsoft back then wasn't very good at acquisitions. and they sort of, you know, they didn't really follow through. Passport got great um, distribution. It went to, you know, hundreds of millions of, of people, which would have taken us, you know, forever to get. But it was something different. And so, the, the, you know, lesson number one is when you sell your company, you, you don't own it anymore. And that's kind of a hard thing for founders to swallow uh, sometimes. Earthlink was much more aligned. It was much more like in their core business. They knew what it wanted. They wanted it to be. Um, people PC was allowed to. Um, I didn't stay but but uh, people's pc was was really an important product for them for another decade after the you know after the acquisition i was still seeing advertising on tv based on the advertising that we had made uh, early on and in fact uh, you didn't move uh, quite far when it came to the segment because what were you guys doing with spot runner so spot runner again it was this theme of democratization so we thought why is it that Domino's Pizza can be on TV, but Joe's Pizza can't be on TV? You know, why is it that that this restaurant chain can be on TV, but the local restaurant can't? And we figured out a way using cable tel television to localize advertising to um, to really a very small segment, so that Joe's Pizza could actually compete with Domino's Pizza. Um, and so it was it was in that same theme. And to crack that, we had to do a few things. We needed to make advertising that was uh, flexible and, and inexpensive enough for people to afford to make an advertisement that looked good. And we needed to figure out how to make a media plan that worked for people. And both of those were really interesting problems. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm 
where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, here you guys raised quite a bit, over $100 million, And it sounds like uh, perhaps uh, you raised too much and you got over your skis. So why was that the case? Well, a lot of things happened in that company. Um, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't a good exit. One of the things is we just got really hot. You know, we were third-time founders. Um, the idea was really compelling. It had a really good story. And, you know, it, it was a good idea. Uh, and... We got a lot of heat, uh, partly because Google made an, an acquisition not long after we started of a company called DMARC Communications, which was a um, similar thing that we were doing, but for radio advertising. And that was a big deal at the time. It was like a $900 million acquisition, which in those days was a, a big deal. And so people started to turn to us and said, well, if they're worth $900 million, these guys, and that's radio, these guys are doing television. It must be worth so much more. Um, and, you know, my... my partner got invited to Sun Valley. Um, you know, people were the Michael Eisner from Disney was on TV saying that we were the next Google. And so money came to us very easily, uh, probably before, well, definitely before we had the same kind of product market fit um, that we should have had to really use that money well. Um, and then, um, you know, in a way that that rings a little bit familiar right now, the market really changed. So in 2000, we started that company in 2005. And in 2008, the world changed, the economy changed, the market crashed, and marketing, television marketing, really suffered. And so we we took a big hit um, in just our our business generally. And you know, between that and some, you know, and being kind of far out ahead of our skis, we just were unable to recover. Um, so ultimately, um, we ended up selling the company, but not for not for more than we raised. And as you, as the saying goes, you know, you either succeed or you learn. So after having had, you know, like the two experiences, you know, with, with, with this third one, what was there for you to learn? So many things. I mean, listen, learning through failure is overrated. <laughs> it hurts a lot. Um, and I, and I get it. And, it, and I did learn a ton. Um, but it, you know, it's, it's just, it was a very painful experience. It's painful to have to let go of employees that are your friends. Um, and a lot of people are experiencing this right now. You know, it's just, it's hard to fail. It's really, really can be brutally painful. So, but I did learn a lot. I learned about overcapitalization. You know, I, I kind of understood the difference between after I come to, came to understand the difference between sort of vanity metrics and real metrics. And um, I learned a bit about strategic partnerships. We had a, we had a kind of a bad strategic relationship with one of our investors who was also in our area. Um, and that was, was kind of a, a big tangle up in the end. But just, yeah, I could, I could go on for hours about the lessons I learned. Well, okay. Obviously, I'm sure that they you know, served you well, and I'm sure that you're using those now for, for, for what you're doing now to really be able to identify winners. So you, know, you decided that uh, you wanted to go on the other side of the table you know, as the next chapter. So 
Why did you go on the other side of the table as an investor? I mean, what was that thought process there? And, and what are you up to right now with 10110 Ventures? Sure. Well, I was lucky uh, in, during the time at, um, at Spotrunner, or, uh, near the end of that journey, one of our investors who was from Index Ventures was also an investor in a company called Factual run by my now partner, Gil Elbaz. And he said, you two would really like each other. Uh, and so after uh, a couple of years after I left Spotrunner, I, I started hanging out with Gil and, um, and he, the, the investor was exactly right. We, we, we're not, a, we're not alike really, but we really have fun talking to each other and hanging out. And, um, and I had also started, you know, I'd done some angel investments in the past, but I'd also started doing more of that and doing some advising and sort of helping folks in the LA ecosystem, which was Still pretty early days for that too, um, and so Gil and I decided to start Ten One Ten to invest our own money, really as, as angel investors. Um, he had a lot of connections. He had, you know, had a very successful exit with selling uh, his first company to Google, and um, while he was still a CEO, he he had interest in in being an investor. And I had time, and I had enthusiasm, and you know, and the two of us decided to pair up. And after about a year of doing that on our own with our own money, we said, well, this is working really well. It's exciting. We're meeting really smart people. We're making good investments. Let's raise some money from outside folks. And we raised an $18 million fund from mostly other successful entrepreneurs. Um, and that became 10110 Fund One. So obviously now you guys have done a, a few funds. So what are the... Um the companies that you guys get excited about? Well, we really like, we've always liked AI and machine learning and sort of big data, um, you know, and some of our fund one companies are really um, great examples of that. So um, one company is called, we've, we've done a lot in the space of computer vision, for example, which is a, you know, an area of AI. One of our companies is called Mashgen, and it is computer vision based retail checkout. So, Imagine uh, going to a store and instead of like manipulating all your items to, in front of a barcode, you just put everything down and it sees it and it rings it up instantly. It's super fast. Um, that company uh, is a very successful fund one company. They started in the cafeteria space, which got really hurt during COVID. And they pivoted a little bit of market to the uh, grab and go sort of convenience store space. And they've since just been blowing up. So they've got a 10,000 store contract with Circle K, which is one of the biggest convenience store chains. They've got a lot of others in the pipeline. They're, they're in airports and stadiums, and um, it's just a great application of the technology. So that's, that's uh, one from Fund One that we really like. And um, another company is uh, called Flock Freight. They do basically, uh, they'd hate for me to use this analogy, but Uber Pool for shipping, um, for less than truckload shipping. So if you think about um, less than truckload shipping, like a, say a pallet of something or a couple pallets of something that don't fill up a truck. The normal way you ship that is you ship your stuff to within a little truck to a hub and it's a hub and spoke model to a hub where they put it on a big truck, goes to another hub, goes to a little truck, uh, etc. That costs a lot of money and it takes a lot of time and it can lead to breakage because you're taking stuff on and off and on and off the truck. What these guys have done is optimize the routes such that they can pick up loads ABC and fill up an entire truck and then drive them to 
across the country and drop them off CBA uh, so that everything just goes in and out once. And it's, it's super efficient and um, less expensive. So I guess when it comes to pattern recognition for being able to identify the ones that are the winners from the ones that maybe it is not so much worth of uh, perhaps, you know, the, the investment, like how, how do you go about identifying winners? What are, what are some of those patterns that uh, you've seen over the course of time? It's really hard. Um, you know, being a, being a founder is way harder than being a VC emotionally and work hours and stress and like, it's much, much easier to be a VC, but to be a good VC is really hard. I mean, one of the things that I keep learning over and over in my career is that it's, you can look at the product, you can look at the market, you can look at the, you know, the TAM, you can look at all of these things, but really it always boils down to the founding team. And especially, you know, at our stage, which is seed, um, there's not that much product and there's still a lot to, to learn. Usually there's some kind of traction and, and signal from the market that the thing is valuable, but, but really it takes, you know, what we look for is resilience. Uh, we look for, you know, cause you have to be able to push through really hard things. You have to be a good listener, um, not just to us, but to everybody on your team and around you and your customers. Um, we look for somebody who wants to go big, um, and really wants to go big, uh, which is sometimes hard to tell. And, um, and someone who is able to rally support around them. So, you know, as a, as a CEO, you need to, and founder, you need to build a great team. You need to get money into your company to support your growth. You need to, to get customers to engage with you. So all of those things really come down to the, to the person. And what we're seeing right now, it's really interesting is, you know, ChatGPT has changed a lot of people's plans and thrown a, a somewhat of a wrench into some, you know, some people's companies because it's like this thing that we were doing this way. Well, now you can do it that way. And I'm seeing founders respond to that challenge. Um, and, and all of them in our portfolio are doing a really good job of saying either, no, that's a distraction or yes, we have to get ahead of this. Um, it's, it's, it's great to see. And that's sort of inaction. Uh, the kind of, you know, the kind of qualities that make a, a founder successful. And I know that for for what you guys are doing now, and also for previous companies, for you building around culture, it was very important. Why it was important, so important? Because a, you know, a, a software company basically is its team, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, most companies are their team, uh, and I think it's really important early on because the people that you hire. You know, the first few employees you hire end up hiring the next few employees, and those employees end up hiring the people after those. And if you set a tone about the kind of person you want at your company, of you know, whatever it is, there can be sort of different ways to to build a great company, different management styles. Um, you can, you know, and if you and if you work on that early, you can propagate it through the company. People want to join companies. Of course, they want to have good jobs. They want to make money. All of those things, but but. You know, when employees come into a company, they're also looking at the other people who are there. Do I want to be part of this group? And, you know, if you if you have a company full of top performers who are great and fun and, you know, whatever you, once again, whatever you're looking for, you'll attract more people like that. Uh, whereas if you want to sort of bring in people who are very different than the team you have, that's that's much harder. So for the people that are listening, that are, you know, obviously excited about the opportunity of maybe, you know, sharing with you what they're up to, what would be the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Sure. I, they can email me. I'm david 
at 10110tenonetten.net. Amazing. Well, hey, David, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.